everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for our In Case You Missed It series of our Revise and Resubmit podcast. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, just one of the two hosts of our now year-long podcast designed to introduce you to research and researchers in the communication field. But it's really not as boring as it sounds. Um, In our In Case You Missed It series, we're going to return to conversations we recorded almost a year ago because during that time, our podcast had a totally different name and you may have missed it. So this week, we're going to be revisiting our conversation with Dr. Keenan Brown, an associate professor in advertising and public relations, and he'll be telling us more about the research he does in sports communication. Keenan is one of my favorite humans ever, truly, and this was such a fun conversation to record because when we recorded it, it was during a time when the sports world had literally come to a halt. Um, At the same time, we were witnessing social unrest and injustice all over the country, and at the time of this conversation, many athletes were speaking out about it all. And this is one of the many areas that Keenan studies, and this is part of what we're going to discuss in today's conversation. So tune in as we revisit this great conversation with Dr. Keenan Brown. Welcome, Keenan. Well, thank, thank you both for having me today. I'm excited. So before we get started talking about your research, I do have to ask, we've had all types of sports from professional sports to little league sports come to a halt for at least the last three months. And for fans, thank goodness for things like Bundesliga and the re-airing <laughs> of the 2012 Wimbledon. How have you managed this world without as much sports going on? That That is such a good question. And honestly, I'm not managing it well. I mean, not just because... <laughs> Not just because, um, you know, a sports research, obviously, you know, it it has kind of stalled my work to a certain extent. And I'm starting, I think the best thing that has really come out of this, I'm going to talk about it a little bit today is it's really kind of opened my eyes to different directions and new avenues that I can take my research. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is definitely a positive uh, from it. But I mean, as you can imagine, it's hard to study sports when there there aren't really sports going on, and then just the the fan in me is struggling right now. I mean, this <laughs> this is this is crazy. <laughs> just you know, I'm I'm a huge NBA fan, and thankfully that the season's going to kick off again um, in about in a week from now. Um, but just not having the finals this summer, and you know, not really getting a chance to really pay attention to the NBA draft and just the weirdness of the NFL draft. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, and really, I mean, I'm not even a huge baseball fan, but no baseball to really watch that you put on in the background if I'm bored. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's been, it's just been, it's been weird. <laughs> it really has. Well, it was a couple of weeks ago, my daughter walked into the house and I had golf on and she's like, what are you doing? Why are you watching golf? And I'm like, because it's something to watch. Yeah. It's like, I just need a fix. Like I just need to watch. Like I honestly will watch anything that is sports related at this point. Seriously. It's been interesting for sure. All right. Yeah. So shifting, shifting back okay. to your research. <laughs> <laughs> can you give us go ahead, us, go ahead on, Lisa. Sorry, can, can you give us a, an elevator pitch on your research? yes all right so so the, the one liner I always like to use when I'm describing my research is okay so if an athlete screws up if they say something stupid if they get arrested 
anything that's controversial, illegal, whatever. I study what they need to do and what they need to say in order to to really kind of focus on improving their image after the fact. Um, so I do focus a lot on what's called reputation management and image repair. So um, just kind of looking at the statements that they put out, the things that they say on social media, their actions, and I, I look at how it impacts their perception among fans, among the audience members. So how much how much do they accept what the um, athlete is doing? How does that impact kind of their overall perception of the athlete? How does that affect, you know, behavioral things like, okay, how, how much crap are they going to talk about the athlete based on the response that they give? Uh, are they actually going to, you know, cheer for the athlete, go to a game, purchase merchandise? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really think that's the biggest impact of it because um, a lot of what we do in strategic comm and PR um, it's really hard to really quantify the bottom line. So I try to look at those behavioral mm-hmm. outcomes because th- those are really the the outcomes that you really focus on the most. Like, you know, how much word of mouth is going to be out there about us? How does this affect, you know, purchasing habits, the support, those sort of things. So mm-hmm. that's so when, when an athlete screws up, I like to study kind of what happens after that. So what's an example of an athlete that you studied who screwed up or said the wrong thing? And can you kind of walk us through that that specific study? Yeah, so I'll actually talk about um, the first study that I did related to this, um, because I don't really think it was a screw up, um, so to speak, on his part. But the reason that I got into this kind of research is because of uh, LeBron James and the decision. And this is actually perfect because I want to say this might be the 10 year anniversary mm-hmm. of the decision. I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it's been 10 years mm-hmm. since um, the decision, which if, if, you know, for those who are listening, if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, this was LeBron's free agency. I'm pretty sure back in 2010, um, where he did an hour long special on ESPN to announce where he was going. And the the kicker to that was he used that hour to announce that he was leaving his hometown Cavaliers to go join the Miami Heat. So you can imagine that it was just a huge uproar uh, around this. And the the curious thing about it was he just never came out with an official statement or anything kind of reacting to the criticism. I mean, he really did for a while there just kind of let his play and the play of his team really kind of do the talking. Um, and there are a lot of things that people don't really know about the decision, you know, that it was actually used to raise money for the Boys and Girls Club. I mean, there was actually, mm-hmm. you know, there was no malice involved there. I mean, it wasn't that he was using this as an ego trip. There was really a good cause attached to it. But of course, I mean, he got drug in the media. Uh, he got, you know, he, he, he had like a backlash against his hometown fans. I mean, so you can imagine just the uproar that it caused. Um, and I remember just, you know, watching this for months as it pay- played out and say, okay, he hasn't said anything yet. Mm-hmm. What let's, let's kind of guess what he would say in this instance. And let's see, let's test a few different statements and see what would have the most impact on improving his image right now. So we ran, we ran an experiment. I did it with two, two colleagues of mine, uh, Josh Dickhouse and me along. They were a year above me in the co- in the uh, doctoral program. So they were in the cohort a uh, year before me. Uh, and we decided to conduct an experiment where we tested different messages just to see 
depending on how much of a fan you were already of LeBron and of basketball, how that would impact um, your acceptance of his statement and how it would impact, you know, the image of his. Um, and what we found was, uh, you know, true to PR, if you love LeBron, you didn't really care what he said. If you hated uh-huh. LeBron, you didn't really care what he said. But there was that, there was that, that middle of the road where you're just kind of indifferent towards him. And it's called, we call it the crystallization of public opinion, NPR. You know, you, you don't really worry about what, I don't want to say worry about, but you don't focus as much on your hardcore fans. They're, they're going to be there regardless. You don't really focus that much on your vocal critics because they're going to be against you no matter what. You focus on those people that are very indifferent towards you and that can be swayed one way or another, depending on the statement that you put out. And we found that um, his apology really had more of a sway with with those people rather than the diehard fans or the, or the critics. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cool thing about it was um, right after the paper was accepted, uh, he actually came out and publicly apologized for it. Like he actually put out an official statement finally. I think this was like maybe in April of the following season uh-huh. where he he officially apologized to the Cavaliers organization and to the fans of Cleveland for um for leaving. Uh, which I just thought was a cool twist on the whole thing. But that that's really that's the study that really kind of got me started on this um on this path. So you mentioned, you know, it was it was after your paper had already been accepted that he came out and, and made an apology. Mm-hmm. So how, how long does image repair take? That, that, that's a really good question. And honestly, <laughs> the the easy answer to that is it takes as long as it takes for you to actually get it done. So mm-hmm. it may take, you know, a few days. You know, it may be something you apologize for and it's just swept under the rug. Um, it could take months. It could take years. I mean, it just really depends on the offensiveness of what you've done, it really depends on the uproar that it causes. It really depends on, you know, just kind of how you handle it. Uh, And I think one of the things that I love to do with my research is to really kind of test different scenarios, test different, um, you know, circumstances in a bubble, just to see how these different variables really kind of interact with each other. And the end game really isn't to you know, come up with this one size fits all. What I don't want to do is I don't want to come up with this chart that people just put up on a board and say, (laughs) okay, so this athlete did this in this circumstance, (laughs) so we need to do this. That's not really what the end game is here. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really more, okay, based on these scenarios, here are some best practices that we came up with. You know, here are some suggestions, Mm -hmm. but obviously, you know, this isn't a one size fits all thing. So you've talked um, a a little bit about these fans that either love an athlete or hate an athlete and or aren't a fan of a specific athlete. We've known that athletes have been used as spokespeople going back to the Wheaties box and even possibly further back. And athletes are now stepping forward and taking a stand on Black Lives Matter or becoming a spokesperson for public health and telling us all to wear a mask or a facial covering. Can you talk a little bit about the space that we're in right now and how influential, if at all, athletes can be? Yes. All right. So um, the the quick answer to that is athletes are probably one of, like one of the most influential sets of people right now in terms of social activism. Uh, environmental activism and so forth. Um, I mean, just because they are, they're, they're celebrities. I mean, they're, they're vocal, their presence is out there. Um, So we do lean on athletes a lot as role models, so to speak, 
um, for a lot of these different issues for, you know, for better or for worse. But one of the cool things that I think um, in terms of my research that has really um, grown out of this and just kind of observing what's going on is watching this intersection between sports and politics. And I think mm-hmm. now, now more than ever, um, you're starting to see politics really mirror the sports world. I mean, you have these two teams, so to speak, battling it out. <laughs> and no matter if, no matter what one team does, whether it's right or wrong, the opposing team's going to pounce on it no matter what, whereas, mm-hmm. the, you know, the fans of the home team or the fans of the team in question are going to support them no matter what. And I think you're starting to see the dichotomy in politics so much more now um, during the age of Trump um, and just kind of seeing those two teams, you know, battle it out. And it just, it just mimics a sporting event. Um, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to weigh in on that, <laughs> but, but it is. And, and I think the cool thing about that is it gives me an opportunity now to really kind of study those intersections and really treat, political affiliation, political orientation, like fandom. So one of the things that I plan on doing here soon is kind of studying statements made by athletes that support certain social issues. So Mm -hmm. Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter, Mm -hmm. um, you know, certain environmental issues, uh, being, you know, either pro-life versus pro-choice, standing up against domestic violence. Like, you know, these things that are very politically charged, and just and what I want to see is which which aspect of this is stronger. So when an athlete puts out the statement, is your fandom or your political affiliation going to sway you more, right. depending on how you react to this? You know, if if you're a Republican, but you're also a hardcore NFL fan, and you see you know a football player put out a statement about Black Lives Matter, which part of your fandom is going to sway you more depending you know based on how you react you know is it going to be your political affiliation that makes you react a certain way or is it going to be your fandom that makes you react a certain way and obviously you know there's going to be an intersection of both and i'm really interested in depending on the type of statement which aspect is stronger in that situation mm-hmm. yeah that's really interesting so when we look at um the athletes i know there have been um some pro athletes that have tested positive and I forget the athlete where his whole family contracted COVID. If they're going public and saying, you know, we need to wear a mask, like in order to protect others, this is what you need to do. Do you feel that in that specific area of public health, that athletes can make a difference? Yeah, yes, I do. So I, I really do think that you know, one of the best things to happen for Alabama is for Nick Saban to actually come out and say, you know what, folks, wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> if you want football, wear a mask. And I mean, I think that 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 was honestly more powerful for the state than Governor Kay Ivey standing up at any point saying wear a mask, just because right. of the who Nick Saban is, what he means to the state, what Alabama football means to the state. Um, I really think that is more impactful than any government official that comes out and says it. The downside to this is why is this public health concern? Why is this, you know, scientifically, you know, supported notion of wearing a mask to kind of mitigate this, you know, spread of COVID? Why is this a political issue now? I mean, that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that I want to study too, is just kind of looking at, okay, 
if an athlete comes out and says wear a mask, like why are Republicans kind of pouncing on this athlete, you know, saying that they're, you know, that's taking away their freedom and they're, you know, a threat to democracy and they're a disgrace to America and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And it's like, oh, all this athlete has done is just sit up here and ask you to wear a mask. But this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the intersection of sports mm-hmm. and politics. Something that shouldn't be mm-hmm. a political issue is now very politically charged and it is going to have an impact on the perception of those athletes. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask. So, so do you think we'll we'll go back to Nick Saban, Roll Tide? Um, <laughs> do, you, do you think that he is going to have to engage in any image repair strategies after coming out and, and wearing a mask and saying to wear a mask? No, uh, and and this kind of goes <laughs> to. Um, I guess one of the central findings um, of my research. Um, it's it's univer- it's almost universally accepted now that if you screw up, you apologize. Like if you do something, even if it's you know even if it's not really your fault, you're just perceived to be in trouble. The the go to is for you to apologize. Like you just need to apologize and just that's it. And what my research has really shown is that not only is apology our apologies not necessarily the best solution in some circumstances, but it can also be a detriment to you in some circumstances because mm-hmm. apologizing could show that you're kind of backtracking from the stance that you took mm-hmm. or, you mm-hmm. know, apo- apologies these days, if everybody's given an apology, then they can seem very shallow, just very, you know, they, they mm-hmm. don't really mean as much. They don't hold as much weight. They're not as genuine anymore because everyone apologizes. And what I've seen is in certain situations, um, you may not necessarily have to apologize. And one of those situations um, is related to um, public statements like this, like Mm -hmm. statements where you are, you know, and I think most most of my work has really kind of looked at more environmental statements, but I think it really does apply here. Like, yes, Nick Saban put out a public health statement about wearing a mask, but I don't think this is a situation where he needs to apologize to, you know, opponents of COVID as crazy as that sounds <laughs> <laughs> for saying that this virus is real and you need to wear a mask. Because I think that the consensus right now among the majority of people is, okay, whether you believe that this is, you know, a, a realistic thing or not, everybody probably needs to wear a mask now. So I, so I don't think there's a situation there that where he needs to do it. Now, you know, on the flip side of he, you know, hopefully that this never happens, but if he ends up getting a DUI or something like that, or, you know, something else that is like more offensive than coming out saying wear a mask, then mm-hmm. we start kind of getting into the realm where, you know, he would probably need to put out a public statement. Have you looked at... Um kind of coaches versus veteran athletes versus rookies versus professional um, and college sports. Is there any difference in, in how one goes about image repair um, versus kind of where you are in your career or your That That is, that is a great question. Um, Mainly because I actually don't look at college sports. And it and and it actually is, it's a it's a conscious decision of mine, um, and it's just something I've never. I mean, I've worked on studies with other colleagues that have taken a lead that looked at collegiate athletics, but just for my primary mm-hmm. research, I stick to professional for a number of reasons. One, 
is the image repair process is a lot trickier there because right. you know professional athletes can usually put out a statement on their own they don't have to go through the channels of their team they don't have to go through the channels of their coach you know they mm -hmm. don't have to go through the ncaa you know and all these different layers to put out the statement whereas collegiate athletes usually have to like make the statement under the guise of that athletic department or the ncaa or something along those lines um, so there's just a lot more red tape. There's a lot more involvement there. So it's a lot harder for like now coaches, you know, athletic directors, I could easily look at those things, but what's the fun in that? Like at, like <laughs> studying athletes really is like, that's where the fun is. Like really just kind of looking at the reactions to different athletes. So that's one reason why it's just the different layers and the different nuances and kind of tying into that, um, the NCAA it's there's a lot of red tape i mean there's a lot of like different rules and regulations that you have to follow um you know through the ncaa and honestly just kind of looking at it collegiate versus professional there aren't as many restrictions and on pro sports so i can really manipulate and do whatever i want in that instance and actually make it more realistic Whereas with collegiate athletics, mm -hmm. I would have to take into account, you know, NCAA regulations. All that it would just it would just make my job a lot harder for what I think what I think yeah. would be minimal minimal results compared to professional athletics. So I'd really like to follow up um, on what you just said about the way messaging can be manipulated. Can you tell us a little bit about? how you actually do the research that you do i mean it's all fascinating but from like a methodological standpoint what are the ways that you go about studying this yeah all right so so the uniqueness of my work is that i've taken a and not to get too technical here but i've taken a theory that in the past has really been studied very rhetorically and what I mean by that is it, it was it was really studied more in terms of the perspective of the source rather than the audience so for example a lot of the work that um that was used for image repair theory for Benoit's theory was really kind of looking at presidential speeches that's really where he got his start mm -hmm. and kind of studying the rhetoric of the actors of the accused and then kind of discussing how you think this would be effective or why you think it would be effective and so forth. And I saw uh, a real gap in this research because we weren't really looking at it from the audience standpoint. Like, you know, we were looking at these statements and we were analyzing the statements rhetorically, but how do we really know if the audience is going to react a certain way? So I started taking Benoit's theory and looking at it experimentally. So that's kind of the twist in my work is I, all of my work is experimental design. Mm -hmm. um, I manipulate the statements, I manipulate the conditions. And it kind of goes back to what I was mentioning about kind of studying these things in a bubble. So what I try to do is I try to isolate two or three variables at a time. And I'm really interested in kind of studying the intersections and the interactions um, between those variables. So with the LeBron James study that I referenced, I wanted to look at how fan involvement, like how your fandom, the, the intensity of your fandom and the the different statements that LeBron could have put out, how do those things interact together? Like, are you going to be more willing to accept an apology, you know, if you are a hardcore fan versus not really, you know, a strong fan of LeBron or the NBA? Mm -hmm. um, is there a chance that you would accept him, you know, attacking his critics 
if you're a hardcore fan, if you're a big fan of LeBron versus if you're just a casual fan. And that's where I think the the, the interesting aspects of the studies kind of come into play is just really kind of looking at how different variables are going to impact how um, people accept those statements. I've done a series of studies where I've looked at the impact of race and gender on the image repair process. Mm-hmm. So is mm-hmm. it going to be harder for a Black woman to apologize or to repair their image after an apology, you know, for a transgression than a white male or a black male. So kind of looking at these intersections, is it going to be harder for a Hispanic athlete or an Asian athlete to repair their image compared to a, to a Caucasian athlete? So it's just kind of looking at those intersections and how they have an impact on the image repair process. Um, that's kind of where political affiliation kind of comes into play. You know, like when you give out, you know, a politically charged statement, is that a political affiliation going to have an impact on how that statement is accepted? Um, so I really just think the intersections of those variables are really the cool thing to study. I mean, anybody can, you know, put out a case study where they're, okay, here's the scenario, here are the statements that they could have done. Let's see which one is effective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't take into account all the contextual variables that come into play there. You know, well, what is the race and the gender of the athlete? What sport does the athlete play? Was this a politically charged statement? Was this a criminal accusation? What is it a non-criminal accusation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are just so many contextual layers to a scenario. And what I'm trying to do is just test as many of those as I can to really kind of come up with some suggestions and some recommendations to take. Well, so I have to ask, um, in the studies that you've done looking at say, a black female versus a white male, what have you found um, in these studies kind of when you've looked at gender and race as factors? Yeah. Okay. So the the most interesting thing I would say I found in that is what um, my colleagues and I have kind of dubbed the racial contradiction. So typically in studies like this, when you look at criminality, um, it's typically harder for, you know, a black person to try to repair their image, or they might have a more negative, like people might have more perception of a, of a black person than a white person if they are involved in criminal activity. Um, the opposite is, is what I've kind of found in my sports studies. And this is something that I've, that I've seen that has really been kind of consistent across the board. Uh, if an athlete is faced with a criminal act, and unless it's the same act, you know, same situation, the only difference that we've kind of manipulated is really kind of the race of that athlete. Uh, we found that it's actually harder for the white athlete to repair their image than the uh, black athlete. Wow. Um, and it, it it's so counterintuitive to the other, like the previous research out there that isn't sports related. Like it, any other study that you look at out there, really kind of looks at um, those studies have found that typically the minority perpetrator has a harder time repairing their image or has a, you know, a more negative perception among the audience or among the media um, than a white, um, a white perpetrator. Um, So it was really interesting. We found that in our first study where we looked at the intersection of race and gender and gender didn't have as, as much of an impact where race did. So we decided to tease that out and look at it just at race, but we decided to look at various races. So we looked at white, black, Hispanic, Asian, Middle Eastern, and the same rules applied. Like that, mm-hmm. um, the white athletes had a harder time repairing their image than minority athletes. So we decided to kind of look at 
why this is, and one of the reasons that we thought this could be is the um, the, the intersection of media consumption. That maybe there's a turn where mm-hmm. if you consume more sports media, then that role reverses, and that's actually what we found. We found that people that consumed um, lower amounts of sports media kind of that you know it, that um that perception really held that the black athlete was perceived more negatively they had a harder time you know repairing their image than the white athlete but as you increase sports media consumption um that role actually reversed at some point where okay now if you're consuming high levels of sports media uh, sports media then the white athlete is actually going to have a harder time repairing their image with you than the black athlete that is really fascinating. And as you said, it's certainly counterintuitive. Yeah, and I think one thing that, that comes out and I think is is cool, Keenan, is is this what you're the, the way you're talking about this and and that research sometimes gets a, a bad a bad reputation for being yeah. boring or <laughs> no, absolutely consuming yes. and doesn't yeah. produce anything. But it's fun, and it's fun to kind of critically think about what what could uh, explain something. Um, it, it really it's, is. It's enjoyable to but hear. No, you I th- talk th- about thank you for research. that. And and honestly, I can, I came into it's funny because I came into my doctoral program with that same kind of perception that okay, you know, I have to find, <laughs> I have to figure out something like very like theory driven and academic and boring to study because that's the only way I'm gonna be able to like make a name for myself in this field. And I remember actually sitting down with um with the director of the program at the time, Jennings Bryan, because I was just in a I was in a rut at that point trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to study. And his I remember his question was like, okay, so you know, outside of academia, outside of school, what do you like to do? It's like, well, look, I'm a huge sports fan. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, well, why don't you study sports? And I, I remember my reaction being, can you do that? Because I just did <laughs> Because I just never really knew at that point. I just, up to that point, I never really knew that sports was a field that I could actually study. That sports communication was a field that I could actually study. And just the more that I dug into it and the more that I found out about, about Kim's work and about Andy Billings' work and about uh, a lot of the other colleagues that we have and just kind of the things that they've done in terms of, uh, race and gender with athletes in terms of the Olympics and things like that. Um, I mean, it just really kind of opened me up to an entirely new avenue of research that I didn't really know was there. And and it has. It's made it's made research a lot more fun for me because mm-hmm. I'm actually studying something that I'm that I'm really interested in. And because of that, I can be more passionate about it. I can talk about it a lot easier. Um, so it just, it makes my job a lot more fun being able to study something that I've enjoyed for, you know, the majority of my life. Well, as we, uh, wrap yeah. this up, always want to throw in a fun question, although everything you've talked about sports, um, is certainly fun. <laughs> as academics, we have the good fortune of being able to travel to different countries or different cities around the United States to present our research at conferences or to be a keynote speaker somewhere. What's one of the favorite places you've either visited in the past or a place that you're really looking forward to going? So, all right. So, I mean, it's not, it's not that exciting, <laughs> but honestly, one, 
I mean, it's exciting. It's exciting to me because it's 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 one of my favorite cities. But one of the things that I look forward to every single year is going to the Broadcast Education Association's conference in Vegas. They have a sports division, and going there and presenting my work to you know other sports researchers. And the difference, I mean, first of all, it's Vegas. Like, I, I love Vegas. It's like, it's like my playground. Like, I absolutely just love going to Vegas every year. So that's part of it. But, you know, from, from a work standpoint, that's where I've always had the most enlightening, the most engaging, the most casual, like, not as stuffy conversations about my work. Because, um, I mean, it's Vegas. It kind of gives off that very casual vibe. And everybody that's, that's in those presentations, I mean, it's, yeah, you give out the present, you give the presentations, but then after that, it just becomes just really a, just a roundtable discussion with everybody that's involved, and you you find out new ideas, you get mm-hmm. new perspectives on things. It's not, you know, academia really gets a, a bad rap, um, and some of it's legit. We we get a bad rap of being <laughs> very condescending to each other sometimes, you know, very you know very just you know demeaning to each other at times, and I mean. Yeah, like you, you have some people that are like that, but I've I've never encountered that in Vegas. Like it's always, hey, this is a great study. You know, have you thought about this? Or you know, this is a unique perspective. Like I cannot, you know, I'm going to use this in my research. Can you talk to me a little more about this? And it just becomes just um just a meeting of the mind, so to speak. Um, that I just really look forward to when I when I go. So I mean, I really think if you get involved in sports research. Uh, look into the sports division of BA, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not a broadcast uh, person. Like, I'm not, you know, a, I'm, I, I have a journalism degree, but I'm not a journalist by trade. Um, so, a lot of people think because uh, because you are like an advertising or a PR person, you don't really have a home with BA, and that's so far from the truth. Because a lot of what we do really depends on the media, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I and I do think that's you know part of the reason why I love that conference is that you know they they could not accept me because I am you know a PR person, but <laughs> I've been embraced more at BEA than a lot of other conferences, uh, and my and my work has been embraced at BEA more than mm-hmm. a lot of other conferences. I think you've just described the way um, stuffy, nerdy people, what happens when stuffy and nerdy people get together in academic conferences. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you put a very pretty picture on the whole thing. I, I, I try what I can. <laughs> Dr. Keenan Brown, it has been so great to talk with you today. Thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for sharing just a little bit about you and your research. Absolutely. Th- thanks for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Anybody that's listening to this, if you if you want to talk more about about sports, about my research, just anything, um, like Kim said at the beginning, I mean, I'm always looking to work with you know students, and not just like collaborate with graduate students, but other faculty members, anybody. Um, you know, my email address is brown at apr. Shoot me an email, uh, even if it's just to pick my brain, even if you just want to talk about sports or the lack thereof right now, I'm always happy to happy to chat. Excellent. Thank you so Absolutely. much, Keenan. Bye. Not a problem. Thanks for having me.